you have your scriptures with you this morning, let's turn to Ephesians. I am so blessed to see her to that we've been talking about for some time. And um, she just needed a little encouragement. She did it. She did an absolutely beautiful job. Thank you so much for that. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's turn to Ephesians. We're in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And we're working on creating Christian culture. We're talking about the church and our walk as it is worthy to that which we've been called, as Paul sets forth in the fourth book of, or the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And it's in this chapter that we begin to look at the, the mechanisms of the church. And uh, the unity is one of the first things that Paul starts to target here. And he builds that from the humility. And we talked about meekness, how that's a part of it. And those word groups are so close together. And this morning we're going to talk a little bit about the love and how unity is created from love. Because that's part of this. Let's read this little passage. We'll be in prayer and then we'll go to the Lord uh, with the sermon. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of the peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this morning, we start to focus a little bit on this love today. I just pray that you fill our hearts with the understanding that we need. Uh, Father, as you build unity in us through the work of the Spirit, as we look at the fact that uh, it is built on the foundation of what you've done in saving us, uh, that we can grow and love and unity as a church. Oh, that's so important to our testimony outside these walls. It's so important to our Christian health inside these walls that we be able to count on, on one another, that we be able to hold one another accountable, that we pray for one another, that we check on one another, that we, that we do all of the one another's of Scripture that make fellowship in a church so sweet. That's what we're after here today, Father, that love that blossoms into the unity that matches the Trinity. Go with us, Father, today. Bless us in that. Bless all those who are here this morning. Go above my words through the work of your Holy Spirit and speak directly to the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Unity is our hope. Unity is our hope. Um, this series that we're going as we start into the fourth chapter, I've called creating, kind of tongue-in-cheek, so creating Christian culture uh, for two reasons, because as we live and move and have, have our being as the church, that is the culture. Uh, th that is our walk. Uh, as we do that inside the building and outside the building, it is the walk that Paul says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been. That's the Christian culture as we live it, not only here in this building, but as we live it out in our lives. And I believe that Christian culture is important. Um, I believe it's important enough that uh, I've, I've want my want and desire that the Lord has laid on my heart to open a school to teach Christian culture as part of education uh, so that it will be a culture of these children's lives that will go through this school. I don't believe there's any part of knowing God that we can get away from 
that doesn't damage us in some way. It stops the blessings, as we learned this morning in our Sunday school hour, it stops the blessings of the covenant from being passed from generation to generation. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, the first uh, 20 or so verses there make it explicitly clear that we teach the fear and the knowledge of God to the not only to our sons, but to our sons' sons and to our daughters and our daughters' sons and daughters. And as we do that, we pass the knowledge of who God is. We pass the knowledge of his statutes and his commandments. And as our sons and daughters and our grandsons and and granddaughters live lives in this world in fear of God and the way he's called in following his commands, they have blessings. When they don't know those commands and statutes and they turn away from God and live lives like the world, they have cursings. They go through difficulties. They live lives that, that don't represent Christian culture. So it's important that we, we enculturate or acculturate more properly children from the, from the cradle up and that we continue to tell ourselves uh, what God is doing Uh, And that Christian culture is the church, beloved. It is the church in this world today. We're the salt in this culture. And salt, for you younger folks, don't know. We used to salt meat to preserve it. We didn't, before refrigeration was there, we we salted meat. And that kept it fresh, didn't it? It kept it from spoiling. And the picture there that God is creating is that as Christians, we're that salt in the world, right? We keep culture from spoiling. So as that culture grows in us, it grows exponentially in the culture around us uh, to be salt and preservative to it. We want people to know the blessings and the fear of the Lord, right? So unity is our hope. Unity in that that, uh, mission is our hope. Unity amongst ourselves uh, begins that. We have the underpinnings now of what that takes to make a good church as we begin to build through chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. It begins... Uh, with us being humbled before God. We saw it there in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, you also, that means in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. That is that when you heard the word of truth, you heard that you were a wretched sinner, (laughs) right? It's offensive. The gospel is first offensive to the human being. Uh, I guarantee you when we preach there on the uh, at 11th or 12th and Locust there in Philadelphia, it's offensive. I've been threatened, and uh, it's offensive to sinners. It was offensive to us at one time, but now it's life to us because the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And because of what the gospel has done in us, we've humbled ourselves, and that was the first word we looked at in creating Christian culture. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of our sins and turn. And that's what this is talking about because the world lays blind in the power of the devil. They're blinded of their sins and need for God. That's why we're to preach and be active of speaking the gospel and the words of truth. That's why it's important your pastor not water down what he's preaching to you, that he not to soothe your ears this morning, that he challenge you deeply and that every pulpit in the land do that. But we know that that's not what takes place necessarily. That those words aren't what they should be a lot of times. So the world stays in its blinded condition. They need to hear the truth of the gospel. And this is what happened to us. In Christ, 
You also, when you heard the word of truth and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. He remains in our hearts. He goes with us. And he continually reminds us of who we are, that we're Christ, that we're saved, that we can be encouraged, that we have hope, that we have love. And he builds unity in this place because of that, right? That's the humbling. But what comes from that humbling is not a lowly life that you just walk around going, oh, woe is me. I'm such a sinner. That's not what we do. From that truth comes the knowledge that Christ is king. That he is right now on his throne. That we go and we tell others of the gospel because they're damned to a sinner's hell. And that we can love them enough to do that. But it's in knowing that Christ is Lord and he is king that we can live and move and have our being and nothing can stop us in that. Nothing. You're mortal until the day you die. And then the moment you take your last breath here, you take your first breath in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not if you haven't repented of your sins and believed on him. That's why you have to be humbled. But in that humility, you get great meekness, strength, strength under power. We don't go and flaunt it. But we know it's there, and it drives the way we live. Matthew 5.5 5 says what? The meek shall inherit the earth. We are those meek who will inherit the earth. We can live like that, beloved. So we understood those things, and I'm totally way off my notes this morning. don't even have a clue where I'm at. Uh, I think the best way to illustrate meekness, uh, we used Moses last week from Numbers, uh, chapter uh, tw 20, I believe it is. The incident where Miriam and Aaron challenge Moses and they challenge him and challenge his authority because they got kind of tired of wandering in the wilderness and they said, well, hasn't God spoken by somebody else? I mean, I know Moses is an pretty important guy, but maybe God has spoken by, maybe there's somebody else we should follow. Maybe there's some other way out of this mess that we're in. And what Moses did was uh, not get up in their face this far from it like most of us in our flesh want to do and go, I tell you what, God gave me this button. But, no, we can't do that. We are the meek, Psalms 37, we are those who are waiting on the Lord. Do not fret when evil seems to prosper. <laughs> the four years, you know, of this administration and the evil that's prospered during that time. But as believers, we do not have to fret because we're meek. We know that the Lord is in total control. And let me tell you how much control the Lord has here this morning. You remember in the first century, they had all gathered together. They brought Jesus in front of Pilate. They were all shouting. They had made a great crowd and they said, crucify him, crucify him, right? They were going to do exactly what was in their hearts that day to take our Lord Jesus Christ to the cross and kill him. But yet what did God do with that? He brought my salvation that day. So it doesn't matter how evil the evil gets. It doesn't matter how much they mean it for evil. God will turn it to our good. That's the heart of meekness. The heart of meekness was in David when he walked up, 15-year-old scrawny runt, out, been out taking care of the sheep in front of all these great warriors, from the Philistines on one side and the Israelite army on the other, even his oldest brothers taunting him, 
The 15-year-old boy walks up and says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? Because he knew it was not a physical battle, but a spiritual battle. That's what meekness is. So I just want to remind you of those two things, because it's in humbling ourselves before the Lord and understanding who God is and why we should fear him, that we gain great power and meekness to live our lives here. Right? And the next thing that comes from that is patience and love and wanting unity among God's people. Those are the precursors, and that's kind of where we start. Because of those two truths, we're saved by the gospel, we're humbled by what God has done. And I think one of the greatest humbling things of the gospel is knowing that we would never choose God, that God changed us. When we heard the message of truth, it regenerated our hearts so that we could respond in faith, and there was no other way we would not respond once we knew who God truly was. Right? That's the humbling, is that salvation is all a work of God. He didn't pick me out because, you know, uh, I can run the 40-yard distance in four and a half seconds. Or I can squat 280 pounds like my son, right? He didn't pick me out because I'm a great guy. He didn't pick me out because I have something that some other people don't. It's all a work of his grace. All a work of his grace. So I'm very humbled before him and all believers should be. But then when you see what you received, you're meek, you have power. You can approach the most grotesque evil in this world and say, thus saith the Lord. Indeed, you're called to. And because of those two truths, we have a soul deep in a binding bond with other believers. We have a bond with one another that uh, others just can't share in this world as the church. One that is so deep and affected by love and unity that it causes, and this is the point of chapter 4, this first section. Just look ahead a little bit. I haven't named this yet. But this is the very heart of what we're talking about, creating Christian culture. Do you see it there in verse 16 of chapter 4? Look at it with me. From whom the whole body joined and held together, that unity, right? That is Christ. He holds us together. That is his work in saving us, his spirit residing in us. It goes back to the end of chapter 3. He holds the whole body together by every joint with which it's equipped, and when each part is working properly, that is, they're loving and sharing their gifts, because you have gifts that bless me, and I have gifts that bless you. And, and, and there's no hierarchy, really, in the giving of gifts in the church. Every gift is just as important as the other, and there's a reason why you're here and a part of this church and why you must be a member and give and share your gifts with this church. Because it's a building up of the body. That's each joint and marrow and bone working properly. It makes what? Do you see it there? The body grows so that it builds itself up in love. And keeps building until the Lord comes again or until we pass from this place. Or until the gospel has gone out and conquered the whole of the world. Unity then. Here's the working proposition this morning for the next three hours. Unity is born out of love and shared values 
found in truth and not law. Unity is born out of love and shared values found in truth, not law. You know why? Law says you have to. Love says you want to. That's the heart of this this morning. The love said that, or the law said that Jesus had to die to pay for our sins, but love said he wanted to. Right? It's the law and grace right there together. John Calvin would write these words. He, meaning the Apostle Paul, proceeds to show more fully in how complete a manner Christians ought to be united one to the other. The union ought to be such that we shall form one body and one soul. I love those words. We're to be so unified that people can't tell us apart one from another, but we're not to lose ourselves in each other because we each have specific gifts, and that's how the Lord's body works. But as we come together and exercise those, we're so unified, it's like one body that grows into one soul that everybody recognizes. That's what the church is. The union ought to be such that we shall form one body and one soul. These words denote a whole man or a whole church. We ought to be united not only in part, but in body and soul. And I think a good illustration of this is a football team. Whenever they don't have one or two stars, and the salary cap has done well to prevent this. They don't have one or two stars, but they have a lot of good secondary type players. And because all those secondary players are well coached, the coach and any good coach understands this that he can make it under the salary cap, yet win games because of the unity that is brought together in that team. So unity is born out of love and shared values, found in truth and not law. This is why Christ's dying prayer for our unity, our becoming a body with one soul, was what it was. One heart, one mission, one love, one fellowship. Turn with me to the book of John momentarily, to the 17th chapter of the book of John. Because this was Christ's dying wish as he went to the cross. That we would be one. And the depth of this unity goes far beyond just agreeing on the color of the carpet or the music we're going to play on a Sunday morning. It goes far beyond. It goes far beyond that. Because it's founded in God himself in the Trinity. Beginning in verse 20, chapter 17. You see the words of Jesus there? Now let me set just a little context this is the end of the farewell portion of the book of John. Chapters 13 through 16, and then the prayer, and then Jesus goes to the cross. So this is the night in Gethsemane that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross. This are his, these are his final thoughts and words to the Father before his death and his passion on Calvary. And so it's kind of set forth in three sections. You have that first section there, and let's just read that to get you familiar with it. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is the farewell portion of John 13 through 16, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you here on earth. I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a beautiful prayer of Jesus. He knows that the way to final glorification is through the cross and 
death on Calvary. This was not only going to glorify his work and put a period on his ministry, but all of the Father's work in redeeming man to himself. So then Jesus prays this prayer about the glorification and the final acts here. But he also prays a prayer in two other sections. This first section, verses 6 down through verse 19, he prays for the disciples, the immediate 12 disciples. Not for Judas, he singles him out as the son of destruction. But for those disciples that would go on and be left in the world, he prays that God guard them, not take them out of the world so that they would not be here to witness him in the world, but that God would guard them and keep them in the world. And of course their unity, their, their togetherness on that was very important. Then he gets to verse 20 where he begins to talk about those others. And that includes us, beloved. Let's read there in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, and again, the ask, Jesus is the I. The ask is for God to protect and to sanctify in his truth and to guide, to bring unity, right? I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples whom he just asked for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one. Look at this. Those who believe in me through the word, that is, those who believe the word of truth that we just picked up from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that's the gospel. That's the understanding that we're sinners. We need Christ's blood to cover us on the cross. That's the word that humbled us, right? They, but the, 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 it goes further. Jesus says that they all may be one, that they all may be one, all of them, from the beginning, the first 11, even up unto us today. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that in the world, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let me read that again, verse 21. That they all may be one or unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. In other words, that the unity that we would have would match the unity and the fellowship and the community that Christ shared with his father. They also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me I've passed on to them. That they may be unified or one even as we are one. I can't imagine being as unified with all of you as Christ is with the father. But that's the picture that Jesus illustrates here. Can you understand that? That's the unity that we have in Christ. That's the power of the church. I and them and you and me, that it goes further here, verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus was praying for us to be unified with a love that goes past all loves. Jesus' love for us is the love that we share for one for the other. Jesus' love is the agent of our unity. It's the foundation of it, this love and this truth that Jesus is talking about. Love is the natural result of a believer's life after having been converted. United with Christ, this person will love others, and this is the beginning, the growth of the unity in the church, just as Jesus had prayed for. Why? Because we saw it in Ephesians as we turn back there in chapter 4, verse 16, that we would build one another up and we would grow in love. Verse 16, chapter 4, 
When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is a common passage. We go back to 1 Corinthians just quickly here with me. Chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Why love? Why is love the key ethic here? Well, I think the rest of the Bible tells that very well. Love builds up. Paul says that in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. The knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That is, in Christ working in us, we're able to love, and that love builds up. That love shows patience. That love shows diligence one to the other that we may think we know until we've taught a better way so that we need love to facilitate that type of teaching. And that is what the church is all about, is it not? As you mature in Christ, and Paul, what Paul is using there is uh, meat that was sacrificed to idols. And not that there's anything wrong with that. It's still good meat. We can eat it and eat it freely. We have the Christian freedom to do that. But what was going on there in Corinth was that they were taking that Christian freedom and it was dinging the consciences of some other younger Christians. So although we have the knowledge that eating meat sacrificed to idols does nothing to us as Christians, some don't. So we refrain from eating the meat because we love the ones who don't yet understand or have that knowledge, right? And that is the outworking of the church is that those of us who know more are teaching those of, uh, that know less, that we're being patient, we're being as a father is with a child, we're nurturing them and seeing them grow because love builds up. The world is just the opposite. It tears down. Love builds up. So it was out of love they did this, not law. Law says you have to. Love says, I want to. Love demanded that they be patient and forbearing with the younger believers and that the younger believers would grow and learn in the atmosphere of love and nourishment that causes the body to grow. I don't know how many of you have seen this this morning, but Miss Darlene Kowal put a post on Facebook, and I know she's probably watching. I'm going to get her here this morning. She posted this great story about her father. And isn't that what Facebook is good for? You know, there, there's theological truth in every Facebook post. <laughs> no, that's not true. There's no birthdays in heaven. Stop saying that. Anyway, she posted a thing about her father, and what had happened was, and I'm just going to kind of give a general view. Probably most of you read that this morning, what Miss Darlene posted, right? She posted a thing about her father because when she pulled into, a dri into their driveway, which had just been widened, and I take it to say that this would probably been widened because now she was a new driver and her vehicle was going to have to be parked in the driveway with her mother and father's vehicle. And so she pulled into that driveway and as she did, there sat that big, beautiful Buick that her father was so proud of. And as she came into that driveway and she parked that, uh, whatever she was driving, that little Bronco 2 or whatever it was she said it was, she drove it right into the side of her father's brand new Buick. Right? Right, as a brand new driver just getting her license, she had to walk in the house and, and I could just see, I mean, the way she wrote it, you could just see this happening. She was going in to take her lump. She was going in to take her punishment. She was going in to tell her father what she had done. She knew she had ruined something that was a, his prize and joy. And she was, had to be somewhat fearful of his answer. But what was his answer? Well, that's the central point of her story. His first question was, Darlene, are you okay? Law says you have to. Love says I want to. She
She had a father who understood what it was like to be a young driver. She had a father who understood that was more concerned about the car or about her safety than his car's safety, right? Love demanded that he be patient with her. Love demanded that he be long-suffering and forbearing. And this is how we create Christian culture, beloved. Love always builds up. Love always builds up. And it's a necessary ethic in the church. Here's my next proposition. When the local church gathers, the love we share for one another restores us. When the local church gathers, the love we share for one another restores us. It builds us up. It builds community. Did you know that your church attendance here today encourages other believers? Beloved, when the church gathers, there's power in that. It causes love, and love always causes growth. Your gathering, your love, your faith, your coming together, particularly in worship and in singing these songs and in the breaking of the bread that we will celebrate momentarily in the sacraments, the Lord builds others up and encourages other believers. Your attendance here encourages me, and your attendance here encourages others that come. Love always builds up, and your faithfulness builds up. We've all sensed this. Uh, I often say, I've been through this before, but churches go through cycles, and when a new pastor comes, there's always a honeymoon period, Right? And because you can just pull that metaphor as long as you want to, because we are the bride and Christ is the groom, there's a honeymoon period. And then after that honeymoon period, it's time to get down to some real business and deal with some real things. And there's always kind of, well, you know, sometimes there's bloody lips. There's difficult times. We're tested. We go through difficult things as we begin to grow. But the thing that covers that, the thing that makes that work is love. Love for the word of God are values founded in truth. And when that is the ethic and that is the thing that we look to the most, we're going to be fine as a church. We're going to grow together as a church. So when we come together on a Sunday morning, there's something that we give one another just by our appearance here in this building on Sunday to worship this God that builds us up. Love is the natural fruit. This is the natural fruit of love and unity that we're built up. In business, I used to call this phenomenon the success principle. It's simple. Success always begets success. But what I didn't fully realize is how the world and its desire for success and to be around something that was growing and successful was really yearning for Jesus because that's our success. That, beloved, is what's missing in the world's definition of success is Jesus. This church will have success and love and community, and fellowship because of Jesus. And the world desires what we have because they don't have Jesus. People are starving for a common bond. People are starving for unity and for true fellowship. Fellowship with other human beings in the way that we fellowship and love each other here. The way that we prayerfully consider each other. The way we patiently work with each other. The way we check on each other. Good night. If Sonny calls me anymore, somebody's going to worry about something going wrong. The guy calls me every two days. You know what he asks? How you doing, Pastor? How's your wife and your son, Pastor? Can I pray for you, Pastor? That doesn't happen in the world. He does that because he loves me. 
He does that because he's truly concerned about me. And a little bugs told me that he calls the rest of you and does the same thing. Or a lot of the rest of you. I got some thumbs up back there. That, you don't get that anywhere but church. In fact, other people may wonder about us some. That's kind of weird. That's okay. Let them wonder. Because we love one another. We care for one another. We pray for one another. We know each other. We go past the worldly greetings. How you doing? I'm doing good. To see you. Well, let me tell you how I'm doing. I've had some difficulties with my mom. Um, I've got a PET scan next week. Would you pray for me? Yeah, let me make a note so I can pray on that day. Yeah, church unity goes deeper than that surface level greeting, doesn't it? There's something special. You all can sense it. It's building, isn't it? Can you sense that? Our numbers are growing because our love Other people will want to, they'll want that growth. There's something about it. It's even kind of hard to explain, but they want it. They'll come to it. They'll be attracted to it. Listen, uh, just let me turn here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the love chapter. You guys are well familiar with that. Let me just read a few verses from that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to get in verse 6, I think. No, I'm going to be in verse 4. Love is patient. And kind. This is not the world's love. This is church love. This is agape love. This is the love that we have for one another first, right? I know they often do this at weddings, at secular weddings, and that just blows me up because they don't understand this love. They think it's the love that they have, the lust they have for their wife or their spouse. But this is the kind of love that we love one another with here in the church, in this context. This is the kind of love that people have been humbled. This is the kind of love that people that understand the meekness that we talked about early represent. This is the kind of love that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4 that's going to build the body up so that it grows. This is the kind of love that's going to attract others so that they can find out enough to know, hey, I can be humble too and have this through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gospel. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It sounds a lot like how Darlene's father was treating her about running into his car. Sounds a lot like how Jesus loves us. That's why I said it doesn't come by law. Law says you have to. Love says you want to. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't listen to its own way. It's more concerned about the way of Christ. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrong, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And love never ends. That type of love never ends. Beloved, church is not life in the world. We are creating Christian culture. Let me read it again. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, and with all humility and meekness or gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, bearing in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of the peace. This is Christian culture. This is the kind of Christian culture that fulfills verse 16 so that when all this is working the way it should, it makes the body grow so that it builds its own self up in love. New believers come to our fellowship and they see our love. They'll want it because it's giving. They cannot get this in the world. They see life and love and unity that creates more life. 
encourages life, loves life, nurtures life, celebrates life. Love always creates, celebrates, nurtures, builds up life. There's one contradiction here. It's one that I saw in the report from the Planned Parenthood yesterday. The world does just the opposite. Uh, and I've sensed this before as I've been standing there. We'll see somebody with a baby in a stroller walk by. And because we're on a sidewalk, you have the Planned Parenthood over here and the people who escort people in. And you have us over here on the street side so we can talk to them before they come. But people are zinging around. I mean, this is Philadelphia. It's busy. There's moms walking babies. And the contradiction is that when mom walks a baby by, every one of the escorts stop. And they rejoice in the life of that baby. Yet right behind them, 6,000 babies are going to die in that year. Our love doesn't contradict like that. Our love doesn't know that stress. Our love builds up. You cannot fake it to make it here. It has to be genuine. When people come in and they sense these things, it's not because it's fake. It's because it's real. They would sense the ungenuineness of us if we were trying to put on a show for them, but they don't. They understand it's real because it is love in a church. People experience the love and the unity. It is not told to them. It is proven and lived. It becomes the atmosphere. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we drink. And it's contagious. Our love and mercy and unity in the Spirit becomes contagious and people naturally are drawn to it and want it and want to be a part of it. That's what Jesus is saying in that prayer in John chapter 17. And it is healthy and it causes growth and it makes the body to grow. It is not available to the world because it comes by the means of the gospel and grace and not the law. Remember I said earlier, the unity is born out of love and shared values found in truth and not law. The world tries to unite people by forcing them. We see that. I mean, we're right in the middle of Pride Month. And we see the total failure of our government and educational system and pop culture and even big business now in trying to unite us around something that will not unite people because there's no love in it. It's contradictory. The law says you have to. Grace and love says you want to, right? That's the difference. This forced unity by way of law, therefore it cannot unify and it will and does only divide. This is the opposite of creating Christian culture. It's worldly culture that divides. It is what sin always does. It divides. It causes shame and grief. Christian culture can only come through the giving up of the worldly and the pursuit of all that is true, good, and beautiful. And that's who we are here, beloved. We are those, and I'll finish with 2 Corinthians 3.18. We read that passage earlier. This is how we change ourselves. Beloved, this is how you are growing uh, in Christ. That passage in 2 Corinthians 3.18, listen, this love is not something we just work up on our own. This love is something that as we look at Christ is coming from us. It is transforming us. Uh, the theological term there is sanctification. You're being changed. You're being transformed. That's what these beautiful words say. Verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit. 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, and that's the church, if it's any place, it's in every believer. You are the church, and together we make up the corporate body. Each individual body that comes that has a spirit residing in it comes to this corporate body. Together we make the church. Where that spirit is, there is freedom. And we all, with our faces uncovered, understanding the truth of who we are, right? That's the humble. Understanding the truth of who God is, that's the meekness. Beholding the glory of the Lord in that situation, we're looking to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are being, do you see it there in the middle of verse 18, transformed into that same image. That word transformed in the Greek is metamorphoso, where we get our word that we use that you learned as a child, metamorphosis. Uh, it's best illustrated in the caterpillar becoming a beautiful butterfly. Not that caterpillars are ugly, but they're being changed into something even more beautiful, I believe. And when we look at Christ, when we behold the glory of the living Lord, we're being changed, literally changed from one moment of glory to the other, transformed, metamorphosed. This is sanctification. Our love is growing. Our unity is growing. Our patience is growing. And because we're all believers in the church, we can look at those who are further behind on the scale and we can be patient in love with them because that's who we were. You can't force somebody to take this route. Law says you have to. But grace says you want to. Because when you look at Jesus Christ, when you understand that the gospel saved you and that he rules the world, that's when you become immortal, beloved. You are immortal until the day you die. And the moment you take your last breath here, you take your first breath. You'll see his hands. They'll have holes in them. You'll see his side, the scar where the spear was inserted. Every day that you look at Christ, you're being changed. You're becoming more loving, more patient. You're being transformed into the same image. You're being made like Christ. You are being literally made like Christ. You're not acting like Christ. You're being made like Christ. There's a transformation process that takes place, and it only takes place in the believer, beloved. Others are drawn to that so that the world may know you. We love one another, and the way we love one another, the world knows God and Christ who saved us through the way we love one another. And it's from one degree of glory to another. And this is all the work of the Lord, who is spirit. I'm reminded of a simple truth that I reminded my son of yesterday. He had just been paid for a little yard work job that he did. Uh, he'd cleaned up some leaves and done some work for a lady. And, and so I wanted to take that moment. He'd made a little bit of money, and I wanted to take that moment just to remind him, remind him of a scriptural principle. It's found in Luke 16.10. It just says this simple thing. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. I was just reminded him that even though that small amount uh, would be insignificant in the overall, 
that it wasn't about the amount of money that he would offer from the amount of money that he earned because God doesn't need our money. It's about what's going on in his heart. It's about what's going on inside him. And the principle there is if you are faithful with a little, you get much. And if you're faithful with much, you get more. And if you're faithful with more, you get everything. Because there's no lack of any want in Jesus Christ. You know what that flows out to? I'm going to leave you with this. If you want a good church, you've got to be a good church. If you want to be loved and loving, be loving and love. You are the church. Let Christ work in you. Love. Be patient. Unify with your brethren. Come to service. Worship. You are the individual members who make up the body. And in you, in your work, in your humility, in your patience, in your love, the soul is formed in the body of Park Bible Baptist Church. Okay? We're creating Christian culture here by what we do and the way we worship. You're becoming the soul. And as you become the soul of this church, you become the soul of this community. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to a close this morning, Father, your gospel has saved us. We are those who have been humbled by the mighty hand of God, by understanding the great mercy you've shown and the grace you've given through your Son, Jesus Christ. So my first prayer is for those that may be listening or may be sitting here deciding over these things this morning, that they've humbled themselves before you, that they have taken up the call to give their life to Jesus and to leave the life of this world to die. And that in that, Father, that you give them great strength and confidence to live their lives, that you give them great strength to know that there is no greater power than you, that you are on your throne, not one thing will take you off your throne, that your king is on Zion, your holy hill, and that his inheritance is all the ends of the earth. He rules and reigns at this very moment. He is Lord. And that from that, Father, we can gain such a comfort and gain such an attitude as your church that we can love one another, we can be patient with one another, we can bear long, be forbidding as you are with us, we can be with one another. That's my prayer. That this church would be so loving and that that body would grow so strong from it and that others in this community would know your love because of our love. Pray for these things in the Lord Jesus' name this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Brothers, we're going to come. We're going to serve.